Welcome back to Dictatorium. Episode 2.4, Ceausescu starts his climb up the government ladder. Last time, we saw how Romania got wrapped up in World War II, escaped from German domination, only to be methodically taken over by Moscow. By 1948, all vestiges of political freedom in Romania had been done away with, and the country had become a people's republic. That said, a satellite of the Soviet Union. The king was living in exile, as were any members of the political elite who had not either sided with the communists or already been imprisoned, as happened to prominent politicians Iano Manu and Constantin Tito Petrescu. So where was Ceausescu during all this? If you recall, in 1944, he and a bunch of other communists returned either from exile, as is the case with Anna Pauker, or escaped from prison, like Yorgo Desch. Ceausescu belonged to the latter group, having spent five years in prison for his affiliation with the then-illegal Communist Party. His years in prison hardened him, but gave him the education and indoctrination into communism that would allow him to succeed in the future. Not only that, but now he had a reputation. He'd been through the fire, and risen from it like some kind of communist martyr returned from the dead. During his time in prison, Gheorghe Udej had taken liking to young Nikolai, who was 18 years his junior, and helped give him that education in communism. During long hours spent behind bars, Gheorghe Udej tutored Nikolai on all things communism, turning the young man into a ravenous disciple. It's been said that Ceausescu even became a kind of enforcer for Gheorghe Udej in prison, acting as a strong man to enforce Stalinist conduct and thinking on those who might be wavering in their faith. After they got out, Gheorghe Udej put Ceausescu in charge of the Union of Communist Youth. His job now was to recruit and indoctrinate young Romanians throughout the whole country. And that makes sense. You put a young guy who was only 26 years old, like Ceausescu, in this post, because you really can't put some old geezer in that spot and expect good results. Ceausescu had the job from August of 1944 to June of 1945. And let me tell you, Business was a booming. In June of 1945, Ceausescu's star rose a little bit higher. Communism was on the up in Romania, and the Soviets were looking for people with the right credentials to fill some key party positions. Because of his extensive education in Marxism-Leninism, because he spent time in jail for being a communist, and because he hadn't gone abroad or belonged to any other fascist group, the Soviets had put him in charge of the political director of the Romanian army and promoted him to the rank of brigadier general. Imagine that. A man who had a fourth grade education, who spent most of his adult life in and out of jail, and who was in fact incarcerated less than just a year before, was now a general in the Romanian army. Ceausescu was one person who I personally wouldn't make a general. I mean, this dude was in his late 20s, he had no experience, and he was a career criminal. But party loyalty was even more important than competence or experience. And good thing the Romanian army wasn't uh, bound to see combat for the next who knows how many years. Despite the fact that his schedule just got really busy, he found time to finally marry Elena Petrescu, his girlfriend of eight years by this point. His oldest son, Valentin, was born in February 1948, just a couple months after the expulsion of King Mikhai and the declaration of Romania as a People's Republic. Not too long after that, 
Ceausescu was moved into the head position in the Ministry of Agriculture. With the Soviet push to make Romania a breadbasket for the Eastern Bloc, Ceausescu was in a position to make a name for himself. He'd remain in this post until 1950, and he would basically start Romania's collectivization process, at least in regard to farming. Collectivization of the whole economy was getting underway, and one of the favorite places to start with is collectivization of agriculture. If you aren't familiar with collectivization as a term and what it means, it's the process whereby a communist government takes over something, in this case privately owned farmland, and starts to create a larger state-owned farm network in its place. No matter how long you owned your farm, or by what means you acquired it, the Communist Party took over your land and combined it with all your neighbors' farms. Generally speaking, these farms were run by Communist Party officials who may have been appointed to run these new collective farms without any real experience in management and or farming. And what happened to you, Joe Farmer? Well, now you work the land just as much as you always had. Well, you were paid by the state, and you didn't get any money from the sale of your own produce. The state owned it. This happened all over Eastern Europe, wherever communism became the form of government. This was a gradual process, and collectivization took several years. And it wouldn't be declared complete in Romania until 1962. But it started right around the time that Ceausescu was heading to the top spot in the agricultural ministry. Collectivized farming, however, has proven to be really inefficient and prone to poor management. Mass mechanization did improve crop yields in Romania up to the 1950s, but after that, Romanian collective farms would struggle to feed the population, especially since the Soviet Union looked at Romania as its own little breadbasket. Remember, Moscow was keen to extract as much as it could from its new satellite state. Now imagine Joe Bob Farmer, who had just been farming as his family had for probably a thousand years. The only valuable thing that you have is your farm, and well, that just got taken away from you. Are you going to let the state take it from you? Well, in fact, you are, because the communists are the only people that, with guns, and they own the security apparatus. Gheorghe Desh and his allies created the People's General Directorate of the Security of the People, called colloquially the Securitate. This secret police force was charged with keeping internal order inside communist Romania, and boy, did they get a reputation for being ruthless. The farmers who just got their land expropriated could raise a fuss, but it would end up with them in jail and probably a tough political prison. In fact, one of these prisons at Pitești became known for its brutality. It would put prisoners through super harsh torture tactics and then train the prisoners to torture other prisoners. Talk about messed up, man. So now... Joe Bob Farmer is without a farm of his own, but he has a job and a guaranteed paycheck from the state, so no matter how hard he works or not, he's getting paid. Part of the reason these farms were so inefficient was because of the horrible working conditions, in which the only incentive to keeping a job was because otherwise you go to jail, as not having a job was illegal. Never mind the fact that although you have years of experience, you now have a farm boss who probably doesn't know his ankle from his elbows. Ceausescu wasn't in the agricultural ministry for long. In 1950, he moved to the position of Deputy Minister of the Armed Forces, a job he would hold until 1954. The Romanian army, so badly punished in World War II, 
was re-equipped after the war. Bolt-action rifles are now replaced with AK-47 assault rifles. World War I vintage fighter aircraft were slowly replaced with Soviet MiG and Sukhoi jet fighters. Old Italian and French-built frigates and patrol craft will be replaced by upgraded Soviet-built ships with the newest weaponry. Nikolai would also have a hand in negotiating the contracts with Soviet companies to procure all this new military hardware. Although, let's be honest, there probably wasn't much in the way of negotiating. Industrial collectivization meant that private business ceased to exist for all intents and purposes. By the mid-1950s, everyone was a state employee. Soviet investment in industry and construction expanded these sectors widely, and new Sovroms, or Soviet-Romanian joint companies, developed for fishing, forestry, construction, and just about every industry you can imagine. Industrial output soared, but could never keep up with Soviet demands. One sector that saw less investment was Romanian consumer goods. And this is something we see all over communist Eastern Europe. Industry was so important, but not really to improve the lives of the citizen. It was there to make the state stronger. Producing quote-unquote stuff for the Romanian populace wasn't high on anyone's priority list. Ceausescu, of course, had a hand in all of this, but his main focus was increasing his stature in the party. In the early 50s, the Communist Party was essentially split between those who had stayed in Romania prior to and during World War II, the home faction, and those who went to Moscow for training, the so-called Muscovite faction. The home faction was headed by Gheorghe Utej, and the Muscovite faction was led by Anna Palker. They were aligned in principle, but it was implementation that really made the two sides differ. Even further, it was a class of personalities. Gheorghe Udej, and therefore his disciple Ceausescu, were about as Romanian as they come. But Anna Palker, on the other hand, was a Jew and a woman. Obviously, there's a big minuses in the balance sheet, according to the Communist Party. Gheorghe Udej, who was a staunch Stalinist, used Stalin's anti-Semitism against her and in 1952, she got expelled from the party. This meant that Gheorghe Udej was now in uncontested control of the Romanian Communist Party, and it would remain so until he died. But Stalin died in March of 1953, in an event that would rock the communist world. His successor, Nikita Khrushchev, would bring about sweeping changes that would end up with large-scale denunciation of many of Stalin's policies. And this put Gheorghe Udej in a pickle. He was a longtime Stalinist, so much so that in 1948, when Stalin was the leader of the Soviet Union and Tito was the leader of Yugoslavia, they had a falling out and Gheorghe Udej got put in the middle. So he sided with Stalin despite sharing a border with Yugoslavia. Now, the Soviet cousins, and you might say overlords, were singing a new song. Even the pragmatist, Gheorghe Udej, played along. He met immense with Tito after Stalin's death, and even further, he went along with the whole Soviet program, and Romanian foreign and domestic policy did not vastly differ from that of their Soviet overlords. Stalin was out, the new stuff was in, and Gheorghe Udej somehow kind of had to make it work. For his part, 
Ceausescu was just as morally and politically flexible as his mentor. He used his friendship with Georgiou Desch to land himself a seat in the Politburo in 1954. The Politburo is one of the main governing bodies in most communist states. The name Politburo comes from the Russian abbreviation Politichiskaya Bureau, or political office. Within the Communist Party, the Politburo is the small group of officials responsible for running a communist state. It's almost like a congress, but members are appointed and not elected. And I don't want to confuse you because there is something called the party congress every few years, which is convened to ratify important decisions. Think of the Politburo as the core of the Communist Party, like the handful of guys who run the whole place. Not long after that, Ceausescu was appointed to the Central Committee, who were even like a smaller group of people that run even um, more tightly. These are the top few people in the Politburo and the highest level decision makers in the whole Communist Party for a given country. The Central Committee speaks, the Politburo says yes sir, and the country is the force to follow their orders. From teenage criminal to wartime prisoner, Nicolae Ceausescu had now risen to the highest rungs of power in Communist Romania, and he wasn't even at the top. In 1949, the Western countries led by Britain, France, and the United States joined to form the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO was intended to deter the Soviet Union from attacking the West, and therefore prevent what would almost certainly be nuclear war. In early 1955, West Germany joined the pact. With NATO so close to its borders, the Soviet Union had to respond, and it did by creating the Warsaw Pact. Poland, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Albania, Bulgaria, Hungary, and Romania joined in a formal military alliance, mimicking the creation of NATO. The world was almost completely bipolar, and it would stay that way for 35 more years. The next year, trouble within the communist ranks became evident when the Poles refused Soviet demands to elect a more compliant Politburo. A few weeks later, in October of 1956, Hungary basically went into rebellion. A student protest in Budapest turned in violent, and within a couple of days, the Hungarian leadership basically disintegrated. To th control the situation and to restore order, the Soviet Union rolled tanks into Budapest to quash the insurrection. 2,500 Hungarians and 700 soldiers lay dead by 10 November when the insurrection was declared over. During the midst of the crisis, Romania's Hungarian population started to stir as well. Remember, large parts of northwest Romania, that being Transylvania, had majority Hungarian populations, and the region had only been returned to Romania in the wake of World War II. The Securitate and the Romanian army moved quickly to keep this unrest from spreading. In addition, Hungarian rights and privileges were curtailed in Romania, and Hungarian language schools were subordinated to Romanian language institutions. This is to say that the Hungarian minority in Romania was experiencing a heretofore unseen level of cultural repression. Ceausescu at this point was not directly involved, but next week we'll look at a similar incident years later that would propel Ceausescu to the forefront of international statesmanship. To counter future unrest, the Romanian government scaled back some of its hyper-frenzied drive to industrialize. Consumer goods were given higher priority in the production food chain, and although collectivization continued, 
The government used a gentler hand in carrying it out. Romanian communist leadership gradually was able to put many of the Sovroms, those joint Soviet-Romanian companies, under Romanian management in an effort to distance itself from the Soviet-dominated economy. In actuality, this was a move to give Romania leverage in both foreign and domestic policy. On that domestic front, the 1950s saw sweeping changes to the everyday lives of all the people. Newspapers and radio, the main way Romanians received the news, were all brought under party control. Printing presses and publishing house all became state-owned and state-run. And if there was a way to get information to the masses, the Romanian Workers' Party, as it was named at the time, owned and controlled it. Controlling the means of propagating information meant that the party could and did shape any news uh, to fit its goals. Any movie could and was shot to cast the party in a good light, while Western quote-unquote excesses were routinely chalked up to imperialism and the exploitation of the worker. Books were heavily censored, and anyone who didn't get on board with the new control over the media was eventually locked up, or worse. That being said, the communists were eager to bring literature and media to the people. A new generation of writers and filmmakers were toe the party line, were given prominent positions, decent salaries, and the opportunity to spread communist gospel to the masses. This extended to the scholarly elite as well. Curriculums at all levels extended the virtues of communism, denigrated the wickedness of democracy, and idolized Marx and Lenin. I would be remiss if I was to leave you thinking that everyone was fine with this new interpretation of just about everything past and present. Like I said, if you outright didn't get with the program, you were in for a rough time. But some authors, directors, and other intellectuals will test the new limits placed on them when given the chance. The Romanian church too saw heavy persecution and regulation in the years after 1948. Although freedom of conscience was written into the new Romanian constitution, this didn't mean freedom of religion. All religious congregations were closely scrutinized and only allowed to continue to function as long as they followed strict rules laid down by the government. Many churches were closed, and close affiliation with religious groups could lead you to being put on a secured talk day watch list. Forget improving your job prospects if you went to church. Communism preaches atheism, and although religion wasn't outright banned, the party did what it could to suppress it. For a culture whose whole existence had been steeped in Christianity since the 300s AD, this was quite the change for most people. The Romanian Orthodox Church was able to operate with intermittent periods of tensions with the state, but Catholic churches in Romania were all closed, and their properties were given to the Orthodox Church or simply destroyed. And you have to keep in mind that most of the Hungarians and Germans who live in Romania at this time are Catholics. So the Communist Party just alienated like a huge part of the population, something like 25%. Gheorghe Udej couldn't stand the thought of a church controlled by Rome having anything to do with the lives of ordinary Romanians. The other ethnic minorities in Romania also saw their way of life eroded in the 50s and 60s under communism especially after the Hungarian uprising of 1956. Romanian Saxons, Jews, and Roma, also known as Gypsies, saw their native schools subordinated, absorbed, or outright banned after the arrival of communism. 
Jews and Romanian Saxons immigrated out of Romania in large numbers during the time. From a high of over 700,000 prior to World War II, Romania's Jewish population was half of that after the war. Once communism arrived in January of 1948, and after Israel became an independent nation in May of 1948, fleeing Romania seemed the logical choice for most Jews. More than 115,000, or fully half of Romania's remaining Jews, fled to Israel by 1951. A similar story happened for the Romanian Saxons. West Germany would pay thousands of Deutschmarks per head for them, and Romania, always in need of hard currency, obliged. This left the Hungarian and Roma populations to be second and third largest, as they remain to this day. By the 1960s, Romania was starting to look less and less like its historical self. Village life was turned upside down. People were migrating en masse to the cities to work in factories owned by the state. A secret police apparatus unheard of in Romanian history was forming and beginning to quietly terrorize the population, and political choice was a thing of the past. By 1965, the Romanian Workers' Party controlled all aspects of life and was cementing its rule with the help of its communist brethren all over the Warsaw Pact. Its leader, Gheorghe Gheorghe Desh, was 65 years old and at the peak of his power. And that's when he picked the perfect time to roll over and die. He'd been suffering for months from a devastating lung cancer, and in March 1965, Romania's first leader died in his bed. There were a couple of people waiting to take his spot. Gheorghe Apostol had been the leader of the Grand National Assembly a few times, and was even the leader of the party as first secretary, albeit briefly, in 1954 and 1955, before handing the reins back over to Gheorghe Udesh. His rival... Ion Maurer refused to back him, but was himself not a good candidate because of his Romanian-Saxon heritage. Another main candidate, longtime Gheorghe Udesh Ahalite Emil Bodnaras, was of Ukrainian and German heritage, so that wouldn't work either. Another prominent Politburo member, Dmitry Kolyu, was an ethnic Bulgarian. Now, the prerequisites were that you had to be Romanian, you had to have been an activist, and you had to be working class to replace Gheorghe Udesh. Maurer put forth a compromise candidate, Nicolae Ceausescu. He'd been quietly jockeying for years to enable just this kind of leap to the forefront. He even advocated for himself upon Dej's death. He promised all the sides of the argument that he'd be a good, neutral choice who wouldn't rock the boat. The other prominent party members would be able to keep their posts and their influence for sure. But in reality, this was all just political maneuvering. What they thought was a plain sheep was actually a wolf in disguise. Ceausescu didn't have any intention to just roll over and let these people dictate to him anymore. Three days after Gheorghe Udej's death, on the 22nd of March, 1965, Nicolae Ceausescu was formally voted in as the first secretary of the Romanian Workers' Party. The poor farmer's son from Scornicesti was now the most powerful man in Romania, and at only 47, he could count on a long rule ahead. Neither Romania nor the world knew what this former cobbler with a fourth grade education would end up being, one of the most infamous dictators in European history. Join me next time as we look at the first few years of Ceausescu's reign.